belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So reads God's word. Let's uh, bow and pray before we consider these verses together. Our Father, we pray that as we return to uh, what is often a very familiar passage of scripture and book of the Bible, we ask that familiarity would not breed contempt. Rather, we ask that you would help us to humble ourselves under your word. And that you, by the power of your spirit, would teach us, would convict us, and would comfort us with the truths of scripture. We pray these things in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Well, summer 2014, summer 2015, and summer 2016, I led the Baptist Youth Evangelism team to London. Uh, The team went to work with a church called Upney Baptist in Barking in East London. Um, Barking is a culturally, ethnically, and religiously diverse area, and that makes children's work, youth work, outreach work, all very exciting and very daunting at the very same time. I would love to say that the attraction of the team was that I led the team, or that there was such exciting and engaging work to be involved in, But I have to be honest that I think one of the main attractions to the team was the fact it was in London. Uh, And on the Saturday, we then got our day off to go into the city uh, and enjoy exploring. And I remember one team in particular, we had a guy from Monaghan on the team. And his one ambition in life was to ride on the underground. That was his one ambition. Now, the underground is an impressive system, but he was just a little bit too excited about this. He simply could not believe that there were trains that went under the ground. This blew his mind. He was so excited about it. And so standing on the platform of the first station that we arrived at, he forced all of the other team members to stand at the sign, you know, the big red circle with the blue line across it. And we all had to stand there and get our photograph taken with him beside the sign. Meanwhile, numerous Londoners walked past us, giving us strange looks. Now, we might laugh at him, but it is an impressive system. I remember being impressed that over the tannoy, there was an apology for a two-minute delay to a train. 
Um, I'm not sure how long a Northern Ireland Railways train would need to be delayed before you get an apology, but it would certainly be longer than two minutes. But the image that is really impressed upon my mind from that trip on the underground is the view from the top of the escalators in the really big stations. If you've been on the underground, you'll know what I'm talking about. You stand right at the top of the escalator and you look down this enormous stairway lined with loads of people and it's at this frightening angle and it simply moves downward, slowly and steadily down, right into the belly of London. And that image of this steady downward movement right down into the depths is one that is created by the first two chapters of the book of Jonah. In chapter 1 we read, and I hardly need to remind you of this familiar story, but we read of Jonah being commanded to go to Nineveh, being commanded to carry God's message to this city and to these people. And instead of obeying God, God's prophet turns the other way and runs to a harbour, books a ticket on a boat, gets onto the boat and tries to go to the furthest place he can think of. As we know, this doesn't go too well. Soon there's a storm. The captain and the sailors confront Jonah and it's all abundantly clear that God won't allow Jonah to avoid this task. So Jonah is thrown overboard and, as we have already read, swallowed by a fish. But what I want us to notice is the use of the imagery of downward movement across these first two chapters. Look at chapter 1 and verse 3. Jonah goes down to Joppa. Move down to verse 5. Jonah goes down to the inner part of the ship. And there in verse 5, he lays down. Jonah is then thrown from the deck down into the raging sea in chapter 1 and verse 15. Then in chapter 2, Jonah recalls being thrown down into the sea in verse 3. He then sinks down into the sea in verses 3 and 5. And finally, he lands on the sea floor, the bottom of the sea, in chapter 2, verse 6. Jonah has been on a downward trajectory for two whole chapters. And as we meet him with this prayer in chapter 2, Jonah is in the depths. He is in the depths. And given the year that we've all experienced, I wonder, is that where we find you today? Have we been on a downward trajectory over the past year? Or or are we afraid that the depths are just around the corner for us? Well, here in the depths, there is hope. Because as we read and think through Jonah chapter 2, there are at least four things that we are encouraged to remember. And in remembering, I think we'll bring encouragement. The first of these is this. We are encouraged to remember God is sovereign. God is sovereign. I wonder what the first thing that popped into your head was whenever I mentioned that we were going to be reading from Jonah chapter 2. For most of us, it was probably the great fish, the whale. For this reason, the famous preacher G. Campbell Morgan lamented, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. It's all too easy to get caught up with the fish, isn't it? And questions of, is this possible? wonder what it would be like to be in the stomach of a whale for three days and three nights. But that is not what the book of Jonah wants us to think about. 
Rather, we should be amazed at the sovereignty of God. It's stated explicitly in verse 17 of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The Lord appointed this fish to swallow Jonah. This isn't a chance happening. It isn't a stroke of good fortune. God has orchestrated this event. And not only does the fish swallow Jonah at God's command, but he then spits him out at God's command as well. Chapter 2 and verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. However, it isn't just the fish that is under God's control. It's the waves as well. In chapter 1 and verse 4, we're told that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea to create the storm. But in chapter 2, Jonah himself acknowledges this. Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah is crediting God with all of this. Your waves, your billows. God is sovereign. There can be no doubt about it. All of these circumstances, the waves and the fish, it's all at God's beck and call. Sinclair Ferguson asserts, few principles are more important in the Christian life than the practical recognition of the sovereignty of God. Only when we recognize God's aim is to make us like Christ and that he works all the events of our lives together for this purpose, will we begin to rejoice in the goal that is produced out of tribulation. In other words, it is God's sovereignty that holds everything else together. Yesterday the TV was awash with the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh. Um, I've done my Duke of Edinburgh awards and Uh, enjoyed the expeditions Uh, and I want you to think about packing your Duke of Edinburgh backpack for your expedition. You lay out all of the bits and pieces that you're going to need across your bedroom floor to survive a weekend in the morns. Your transia, your methylated spirits, your waterproofs, your multiple layers, your dry socks, your water, your food, your chocolate, your hat, your gloves, your sleeping bag the part of the tent you've been assigned to carry, your bivy bag in case of emergency, your map, your compass, on and on we could go about all of the different bits and pieces that you need for your Duke of Edinburgh expedition. But you need something to carry all of these things in. Without a rucksack, you're not going to get very far. Of course, you could pick a few of the essential items and try to stick them in your pockets or carry them in your arms, but you're not going to get very far into the morns taking all of this Uh, with you in this kind of manner. And, And so it is with God and with all of his attributes. Yes, God is love. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is just. He's all knowing. He's ever present. He's faithful, patient, good, righteous, holy, wise. He provides for his people. He is truth. He is perfect. On and on we could go about all of the attributes and facets of God's character. But the doctrine that holds all of these things together is God's sovereignty. His all-powerfulness, his complete control of all things. If God was good but not sovereign, well, he could not execute his goodness at his will. If God was just but not sovereign, 
He may wish to punish wrongdoers, but he might not be able. If God was faithful but not sovereign, he may fail in his faithfulness from time to time because of extenuating circumstances. And so in the depths, Jonah is careful to encourage us, remember, God is sovereign. No matter what you face, you can face it with confidence because God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. When you feel like you're drowning in life, God can send a fish of some description to rescue you. We must trust our God. We can trust our God because all of his attributes are wrapped up in this rucksack of his sovereignty. Remember, God is sovereign. Second, we are encouraged to remember that God answers prayer. God answers prayer. Jonah asserts this truth before he even gives us the content of his prayer. Look at the beginning of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. God answers prayer. Even from the depths, God hears and answers our prayers. Jonah's situation was pretty desperate. Listen to how Jonah himself describes it. Chapter 2, verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. Jonah is struggling to keep his head above water. By verse 5, the seaweed is wrapped around that head and is pulling him down under. And in verse 6, he reaches the sea floor. In other words, death. This prophet of the Lord who thought he could escape God's call on his life is now facing the end of his life at the bottom of the sea. And it is here for the very first time in the book of Jonah that God's prophet calls out, to God. Here's the reality. Sometimes we have to be brought to the end of ourselves before we really seek God, before we actually cry out to him. I came across an incredible story in the Gospel Coalition's blog. It begins with a young woman sitting listening to a worship song about surrendering everything to God. In her head, this is correct and it makes sense. In her heart, she doesn't quite trust God with her future. Soon she marries her dream husband, and that's whenever things begin to change. Previously, she had suffered from a range of physical ailments, but after getting married, they worsened significantly. She was beginning to take anaphylactic reactions to most things. Her favorite foods, scented candles, even medication was causing a reaction. She writes... Instead of date nights, babies, and family get-togethers, life became a relentless series of doctor's appointments, medical tests, multiple diagnoses, and hospitalizations with no successful treatments. Her dreams were falling apart. If 
finally, she was diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome, a rare disorder which manifests differently in each patient and has no known cure. But in her, it was allergic reactions that was manifesting itself. And she was allergic not just to food and candles and medication, but even to human contact. She was allergic to her husband. This meant that soon she was confined to a single room in their new house, fitted with special air filters to prevent her suffering any more anaphylactic reactions. Sitting in that room by herself, she finishes writing this blog post with these words. Before getting sick, Jesus was a part of my life, a savior for whenever I needed him. Now, Jesus is my life. This woman had to have everything stripped away before she totally relied on God, before she spent extended time in prayer with him, before she really experienced this relationship with Jesus. Jonah is a little different. He had to have everything stripped away from him, everything he could rely on, his escape plan, his ship, his destination. It was all gone before he is forced to cry out to God. Sometimes we will be taken down to the very depths of experiencing disaster before change is possible. Often it is only in the most desperate of circumstances that we will cry out to God. I hear you asking, Davy, how is this supposed to be encouraging? Well, here's the encouragement. Because when we do, he both hears and answers our prayers. This is Jonah's testimony. Verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Cry out to God. Speak to him. Tell him how you feel and what you're experiencing because he hears and he answers. Now, this comes with a warning because the answer may not always be what you expect. Consider Jonah. He is thanking God for deliverance from the gut of a wheel. Nonetheless, it was an answer to prayer. Remember, God answers prayer. Thirdly, we're encouraged to remember You are not the first. You are not the first. This is more of an implicit point rather than an explicit point in this passage. But here we have Jonah, a prophet of the Lord, commissioned with God's message, and he finds himself in the depths. Yahweh, the God of Israel, had called his prophet to pronounce his judgment on foreign nations, and yet we find him here in the depths facing and experiencing grief, disappointment, fear. If we were to read chapter 2 by itself, we could be forgiven for thinking that it was a psalm. Uh, It's a lot of similar phrases to the psalms. Uh, And that reminder reminds us that a number of different psalmists experienced similar circumstances to Jonah. If we think through biblical history, we can think of Elijah, Job, Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, they all experience the depths. Zach Eswine, in a book entitled Spurgeon's Sorrows, writes, 
After citing his historical examples such as Martin Luther, Isaac Newton, and William Cooper, then biblical examples such as Job, King David, Elijah, and our Lord Jesus, Charles Spurgeon will inevitably say, you are not the first child of God who has been depressed or troubled. Even among the noblest of men and women who ever lived, there has been much of this kind of thing. Do not, therefore, think that you are quite alone in your sorrow. Do not despair that because, as a Christian in particular, we find ourselves in the depths. Many have walked that road before us. Many will walk that road after us. And undoubtedly, there are some here this morning who are walking that road with you. God will not leave us alone in the depths. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are in them with us. And so remember, you are not the first. And then fourthly and finally, Jonah would encourage us to remember salvation is from God. Salvation is from God. It is in the depths that Jonah confesses that salvation belongs to God alone. Look at verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Idols are vanity, says Jonah. The second sentence of verse 8 is a little awkward either. The idols fail to give steadfast love or the worshippers realize the futility of worshipping idols and remove their love from them. But either way, idolatry is vanity. But Jonah doesn't worship an idol. He worships the living God. And so with thanksgiving and sacrifice and vows, Jonah will proclaim that salvation belongs to the Lord. We should not miss the clear echoing of the end of chapter 1 here. The end of chapter 1, the pagan sailors forsake idols, worship the Lord, and make sacrifices and vows. But it took Jonah to descend to the depths before he could follow the lead of the pagan sailors. One commentator writes, The fish stands for the amazing grace of God, which came down to where Jonah was and lifted him up to new life. Because of God's salvation in the shape of a big fish, the direction of Jonah's life was changed. At the end of verse 6, instead of continuing this downward trajectory that we noticed earlier, the Lord lifted Jonah. He brought him up. Salvation is from the Lord. A number of years ago, I read a story in an edition of Private Eye about the Law Society. Um, some people will know this more than me, but apparently for a company or a bank or a building society to be accredited to loan mortgages, they have to apply to the Law Society for that accreditation. It used to be that you could do your training or your education in a number of different establishments and then simply apply to the Law Society for this accreditation. But in recent years, the Law Society have changed the rules and changed what's necessary, so much so that accreditation can only be found by going to the Law Society for their training and then applying for their accreditation. 
That means that the law society has a monopoly on this market. You can get it nowhere else but from them. And that's what Jonah is saying here about God's salvation. God has a monopoly on salvation. You can find it nowhere else. There's no other way to enjoy salvation except through the way that God prescribes. It can be sourced in no other place but in God himself through the sacrifice of his son, which we'll remember shortly. We need to be reminded that in the depths, we cannot get ourselves back to the surface. There's no other, other individual who can lift us out of the depths than God. It is God alone who saves us from the depths. Now, in the Old Testament, the word salvation has a wide range of meanings. Both physical and spiritual deliverance is often referred to. But as we read the Bible in its entirety, we soon come to see that every physical deliverance is simply pointing to or an illustration of the greatest spiritual deliverance that God offers through his son, Jesus Christ. In the depths, as Christians, we must never forget that it is in Christ alone our hope is found. It is he that we should be looking to. And we should remember that salvation is from God. Jonah chapter 2 ends with the fish spitting Jonah out onto the dry land. The salvation is complete. Jonah is alive and he's on the dry land. One commentator jokes that the disobedient prophet is so revolting that even a whale can't stomach him for very long. But something much more beautiful is taking place here than simply a great fish being ill on a beach. Chapter 2 is finishing where the story of Jonah began. The story of Jonah began with Jonah on dry land, knowing where God would have him be and what God would have him do. And here at the end of chapter 2, we find him in the very same position. Here is Jonah's second chance. Being taken down into the depths by God is often an opportunity to learn a lesson. And so the question that lies before us, after being reminded that God is sovereign, that he answers prayers, that others have walked this path before us, and that ultimately salvation is from God alone, in light of the struggles and strains and pressures that we've experienced over the last year, the question that lies before us is this. When we are brought back to the surface, when we are given our second chance, will we take it? Will we trust God more? Will we love him better? Will we be obedient to his call on our lives? Will we take the second chance that he offers? Do not waste all of the time that we've had to reflect and think upon the hardship of life here and now. Do not waste the opportunity to see God's hand at work in the darkest of days. As we emerge from what we have experienced over the past year, there will undoubtedly be difficult days ahead, but there will be opportunities. And the truths that we find here in Jonah chapter 2 would encourage us to take those opportunities with both hands and to make the most of it. 
We're going to echo Jonah's final words in his prayer in our next song. The Lord is my salvation. We're going to stand together and sing this. And as we do so, we will prepare our hearts to participate in communion, this demonstration that the Lord is our salvation. So let's stand together and sing.
this man.